Previously on At The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Chaney, and Lou Katz. I'm desperate for something. <laughs> I'm totally out of things to There's watch, no way. Which... That, whenever someone says that, I'm like, that is not true. It's not humanly <laughs> possible. At The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Chaney, and Lou Katz begins now. Hello, hello. I'm Hound Radio's Lou Katz, and we want to welcome you again to the podcast that keeps you informed on the ever-changing world of entertainment. And that means it's time to welcome in some fine folks from Vulture WTOP Radio, the woman who's still seeking out Trader Joe's microwave popcorn, (laughs) Jen Chaney. I will always be seeking it out. This is my mission. And America's longest working critic and a guy who just does not know what the word retirement really means. Please welcome, it's Arch Campbell. Give me the hook. Give me the hook. I feel it coming. Well, here we are. Hello, Jen, and hello, Lou. And this is the week after the Emmys and the beginning of the fall season. And to help us celebrate... Today, we welcome our friend from WTOP Radio, the entertainment critic, and our good friend, Jason Frail. Yeah, Jason. All right. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hopefully, no one ever gives you the hook, Arch. Never <laughs> retire, ever. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I see that sun setting. <laughs> it's not even in the distance anymore. Well, the Emmys were this weekend, and... Uh, I watched uh, Jimmy Kimmel and, uh, you know, I think they tried some creative things, but basically I lost interest. (laughs) How about you guys? Jen, what'd you think? Yeah, I think one of the problems was that the whole first hour was just giving Emmys to Schitt's Creek over and over again because they completely swept in the comedy categories, which uh, had not been done before. And because they were also having their own party in Toronto, the first hour kind of felt a little bit like a, a real award show. And it wasn't until the second hour when they, they switched up categories and you actually got to go into people's homes in different locations that it felt a little bit more unusual. I mean, I will say I give my hats off to them. It's really hard to, to pull that off uh, with no technical glitches and finishing right on time, uh, which they did. So, so uh, I was, you know, impressed by that and very happy to see Watchmen winning as many awards as it did. Right. Uh, I've read that uh, this year's Emmys are being referred to as the award shows for television shows nobody's seen. <laughs> it's... I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> well, I've tried to get into Shit's Creek. I really have. And I just, and I, I'm going to go back and try again, but I never, I just never could get uh, traction with it. Yeah, I can sort of see what you mean in terms of. Um, it took it took my wife and I a couple episodes to get into it, but I'd say midway through the first season on, like all the way up through the end, we we loved it. We, we really grew to love it. I, I thought there was not only the great performances by, you know, the four that swept, which is crazy. Like Jen said, it's cr- crazy to think that it's the first sitcom to sweep, right? Like no cheers, Seinfeld friends, something you, you think something else would have yeah. done it over the years. But um. I, I, we just, I just love that the, sort of the family themes and the idea that living in this small, you know, life in a small town motel might be better than all the swanky parties in their former, you know, plastic Hollywood world. And Catherine Harris sort of like, um, you know, like a Norma Desmond of modern day. So I, I thought Eugene and Dan Levy too, the father son thing, I think it made it for a, 
for um, a cool Emmys, if if a bit of a redundant one <laughs> in the beginning. But I'd say stick with it, Arch. It's, it was on Pop TV, to your point, and that's why not many people have, have seen it. But I think it's coming to Comedy Central, the reruns early October, and then the final season hits Netflix, I believe, like October 7th or something. Do we know I mean, anything I, I, about, for instance, Succession going back into production, or if it will ever? I mean, we know that uh, Schitt's Creek is uh, finished. Succession is going going to go back into production. I don't know if they have started yet or not, but I know that they are. So I would say, I, I feel like we're going to see the next season sometime next year. I just don't know when. I was really excited to see, well, I mean, everyone knew Succession was, was going to win, you know, for best drama. Um, but I was excited to see that uh, Jeremy Strong beat out his co-star Brian Cox for... That was a surprise. For best actor. Yeah, because Brian Cox had just won at the Globes, but... Um, I actually had predicted Strong because it, it seemed, you know, it seemed like his Kendall Roy, you know, the, the heir apparent um, of, of the media empire. He, his character sort of had, after a giant twist at the end of season one, his performance was completely different from season one to two. You know, season one, he was brash and cocky. And season two, he was downtrodden, almost like a, a beaten dog with his father having a big secret over his head. And then the, the big finale of season two, Jen, I mean, I thought... The moment they had of him on, on, you know, going on TV and his father slightly smiling there before they cut the black, I thought it was really brilliantly done. Yeah, it was a great finale. And the Emmy goes to Zendaya, Euphoria. I, I think the big surprise, honestly, was Zendaya winning for Euphoria. Oh gosh, um, I just want to say thank you um, to the TV Academy, um, to all the other incredible women in this category. I, I admire you all so much. This is. Um, Oh, this is pretty crazy. I don't really cry. She was very good in that show. I just wasn't sure that Emmy voters would uh, necessarily have taken the time to watch it. Um, I would have expected maybe Olivia Coleman or Laura Linney or somebody else, but um, you know, good for her. She's the youngest youngest person and the second African-American woman to win in that category. I want to mention that the director, Maria Schrader of Unorthodox, uh, won Outstanding Directing, and I don't think that was uh, predicted. And mm -hmm. that is a, a win for Unorthodox, which is uh, often mentioned as uh, one of these shows of the year. And Julia Garner from Ozark, she won last year, but she's kind of coming to her own. Ruth Langmore, like the best part of that show. I thought Laura Linney was going to win too, but you know, good for Zendaya. So any final reactions, Jen? What, how do you wrap it? I just, uh, I do want to say that I was never a huge Schitt's Creek fan either. I like the people mm -hmm. on it and I haven't watched it all the way through either. Um, but I, another show also had its final season that was pulling off stuff at a level of difficulty that is much, much higher. And that's The Good Place. That won zero Emmys throughout its entire run. And it made me mad that everything went to Schitt's Creek and The Good Place got nothing um, because I thought what, what Mike Scher did with that show uh, was, was really brilliant. And it felt like that was the, the show that was really kind of commenting on the era that we're living in sort of by accident, by talking so much about what does it mean to be a good person and what does it mean to have integrity? So I was very disappointed in that. No fork and Emmys. <laughs> no fork and Emmys. Mad. <laughs> so having said that, Jen, what's new this week? <laughs> More stuff, man. Um, it just, it's a never ending parade. I keep thinking it's going to dry up. It's not, it's just never, it's not. That was a, that, that was a fallacy. <laughs> so I don't think we talked before about this uh, new series, We Are Who We Are on HBO. Mm -hmm. 
It started a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's from Luca Guadagnino, who did um, Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name, right? Thank you. And it, in some ways, it will remind you of that in that it's, you know, it's a coming of age story. It's set in Italy. It's about uh, kids who are kind of um, dealing with their sexual identities. Um, but it's set on an army base. It's beautifully shot. Like it was, it's one of those shows that it's not at all plot driven, but you just kind of get soaked up in the atmosphere of it. Um, so I highly recommend that. That's on HBO on Monday nights. This weekend, there's a, a few things that are premiering. One is the show, another true crime show, because we don't have enough. <laughs> Uh, this one is Wilderness of Error, and it's about mm. the famous case that I think really was like the beginning of the modern true crime era. The guy who murdered his, allegedly murdered his entire family and inspired the book Fatal Vision, which was then made into a miniseries. Uh, it's it's re-looking at that case again. Uh, it's it's I've only watched the, the very first episode, but it's a pretty interesting series. Then on Sunday night, we've got The Comey Rule, which is, I don't know whether to call this a two-part miniseries, two movies, a two-night television event, whatever it is. It's based on Jim Comey's book, and it's looking at the whole, the investigations into Hillary's emails and the Russia investigation and um, Comey's relationship with Trump and how he eventually got fired. Um, so it's, it's a lot of stuff that you've heard a lot about, um, and you kind of know these stories. One thing that's interesting to me about it, though, is that... Um, uh, hold on a second. Sorry. I just forgot the name of the guy who plays Trump. Hold on. I've seen him in some of the trailers and it looks like, uh, it reminds me of like a Franklin Jella Frost Nixon, like he really gets into it. So Brendan Gleeson plays Donald Trump. Mm, and I, I feel like we've gotten so accustomed to seeing Trump played as a comedic figure, you know, by Alec Baldwin or by, you know, Sarah Cooper's um, TikTok videos or whatever it may be. And Gleason really plays him as as uh, an intimidating and kind of scary figure. And that part of it to me was really interesting. I know some people in the bureau have it in for me, but I'm the president now. I don't know how many people are going to be like, well, it's Sunday night. I think I want to watch a whole show about the Russia investigation. That remains to be seen, I think. Yeah, you know, there was a front line on last night about the challenges of Trump's life and the challenges of Biden's life. And mm -hmm. I just I just couldn't watch it. I, I watched yeah. an episode of The Vote uh, about uh, women's suffrage, but uh, I just, I, I couldn't go there. What, what is Wilderness of Error on? Is that on FX? That's on FX. Is, that, then, an, is that under the umbrella of Fargo? No. So the, real quick, also on Sunday night, Fargo season four, which was supposed to come on earlier this year and got postponed because of the pandemic, is premiering on Sunday night. Oh, uh, who's, in, who's in Fargo this time? Oh boy, a bunch of people. Chris Rock, uh, Jason mm. Schwartzman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm there. I'll be watching that. Jason, what are you watching? We've actually been watching, uh, well, after getting caught up on a bunch of the Emmy shows, the new one, I guess, going forward that we've been, we're a couple episodes in is... Um, is Lovecraft Country on HBO. Have you seen that, Jen? Uh, yeah, I've seen most of it. Okay, yeah, I think I think they're releasing only like one a week. It's not one of those where they post everything all at once. So it's sort of, we're, we're waiting for new episodes now. I think they're like five in or something. But it's a sort of sci-fi horror thing. And I sort of, similar to how American Horror Story has a different theme for its entire season anthology, this is like that, but it's almost like a different theme genre theme each episode so episode one was sort of like a 
Green Book meets A Quiet Place. And then episode two was like vampires. Then you had haunted houses in season three. And then four is like an Indiana Jones with booby traps and clues. And so it keeps the main characters weaving throughout, you know, semi cliffhangers that, that, you know, loosely tie together the episodes. But it's a fun little romp. I'm kind of waiting to see, you know, if it's cohesive all the way through the end it seems sort of like mini self-contained stories each time but I do like the actors the lead actor is Jonathan Majors he plays a guy named Atticus Freeman um where uh I, I believe he was in Last Black Man in San Francisco yeah 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 and then the lead actress is Journey Smollett who a lot of people I, I mean I remembered her as a little girl as Michelle Tanner's best friend in um in Full House so she's been around a while and she's get, quite like, good in that Right. And then you get Michael K. Williams as the father figure. He, you know, he was Omar, Omar coming in The Wire. So, and Co- Courtney B. Vance. Courtney Vance, who was yeah. So, who was so good in um, The People vs. O.J. Simpson and everything else. So, yeah. So, Arch, what, I mean, you, how, how many episodes in are you? Well, I got about three or four episodes in. Uh, I want to like it more than I do. I've been telling that to Jen almost every time we've talked. I just, I want to love it. And I, I find it okay. I'm very surprised. I watched Ratchet, which, mm. which is sorry. by the guy who did Feud and Hollywood. And I got totally hooked on Ratchet. Because you did? It, it's, a, it's a riff on old Alfred Hitchcock movies. It's, I thought it was a riff on Spellbound. Did you ever see the movie Spellbound? Yeah. Hitchcock made it in the late 40s. It's... Uh, Gregory Peck, and he's in an institution because he's lost his memory. And Ingrid Bergman is his psychiatrist. And uh, Leo G. Carroll is running the institute. The look of it and the actresses, Judy Davis and Sarah Paulson, it was, it was I kind of took it as wallpaper. I mean, it, it's complete junk. It's absolute <laughs> junk. And I watched the whole thing. I tell you what I watched on your recommendation, Jen, is the uh, Challenger documentary. And uh, with you, I agree. I think it's four short short parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it could have been, I, I wanted more. Yeah. And I think someone could even do more on it. And uh, Yeah, there's, there's more stories to tell there for that's sure. That's one of the best things I've seen. But I am very, I'm surprised. <laughs> how much I liked Ratchet in spite of, I mean, it's, it's complete junk. It's just, it's over the top. Have you seen Ratchet, Jason? No, that's what I was about to say. I haven't started watching it yet, but I've listened to some of your past podcasts, obviously a big fan here. Um, and <laughs> You're the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is my, you know, my, your- that's all me. Um, so, um, no, but I heard Jen saying about how she surprisingly hadn't, hadn't seen Cuckoo's Nest before and just re- re- recently went back and watched it. And I had an interesting, similar experience where, so it was, it's been one of my, my favorite and my family's favorite movies for a long time. My mm-hmm. grandparents, we, we'd quote it, you know, through film school, we watched it again, you'd love it. And that, but my wife had never seen it. So we went back and it was funny watching it the first time through her eyes in a post Me Too era you look back and you say, man, maybe Nurse Ratchet isn't all that bad. And you kind of, you kind of look and, you know, I'm sitting there with my wife and I'm like, wow, the only female characters in, in Cuckoo's Nest are this really 
cold, you know, nurse character. And then two, you know, bimbo floozies, totally overwritten in that regard that they bring in, you know, to sleep around with all the guys. But there's no strong female characters other than that, other than Ratchet, but she's uh-huh. the villain in the movie, you know. So, and, and also when you look and see what Randall P. McMurphy Nicholson's, you know, great, great role, um, when you go back and remember why he was put in the institution in the first place, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's like statutory rape. Like you yeah. kind of, you, you kind it kind of makes me wonder certain movies that are held up in the sixties mm-hmm. and seven and, and don't get me wrong. It was great for so many reasons when it came out and, you know, it's still a classic, but it really makes you re-examine certain movies. Like, I mean, did, was that sort of what you were feeling, Jen? Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, you're supposed to empathize with Nicholson's character, even though, you know, like you said, in the first 10 minutes, he establishes himself as an unrepentant statutory rapist. And he's not even supposed to be there. Like he's he's doing, he's in the institution to get out of being in prison. And so, and then he's antagonizing um, Nurse Ratchet and, and just causing trouble. So I'm like, I, wait, I'm supposed to be on his side in this? Oh, interesting. Okay. I watched like maybe half of Ratchet and I haven't finished it. I agree with you, Arch, that it is beautiful looking. I like all the actors in it. But that was the other thing that was surprising to me, like given Ryan Murphy's track record and even his track record working with Sarah Paulson, I thought, well, what they're going to do is they're going to dismantle our perceptions of of Nurse Ratchet and like show another side of her to like put her character in better context the way they did with um, the way they did in People versus OJ. Uh-huh. And unless something crazy happens in the last episodes, that does not seem to be what they were doing. They were leaning into the villainy hard. Did I you thought. notice that uh, he used a lot of the same music from the Hitchcock soundtracks? The mu- music from uh, Psycho is in there and the mm-hmm. music from um, Vertigo is used and some of the music from North by Northwest. Uh, Jason, if you watch, just see if you agree that it's a riff on Spellbound. But on the other hand, Jen, you are correct. It's no people versus OJ. It's it's junk TV, but for some reason. Well, I'm excited to see. I mean, as you know, Arch, I love Hitchcock and that that Vertigo right. theme by Bernard Herrmann, I think arguably my- do you, do you remember Spellbound, the Hitchcock movie Spellbound from the late 40s? Yeah, Peck is like, Peck and Bergman, and it's like he's an amnesic. Yeah. And it, I, remember, I remember like the big- like uh special effects sequences with like a bunch of, i just picture like a bunch of eyeballs appearing on the screen yeah. like, a, like a hypnotic uh with the, another or yeah. uh like i don't was salvador it? dolly designed yeah. a scene for hitchcock a dream and then he he takes a fork and he and he indents a, a white tablecloth and suddenly we're seeing a skiing accident and and that's what this but but the point is, uh, he could have done a lot more with Ratchet. Yeah, <laughs> so and I, gonna... <laughs> I think, um, just to finish our, our combo on Cuckoo's Nest and everything, put a bow on it. I think the thing that sort of saves it, even in, in the context of all the new Me, Me Too, um, you know, awakening, looking back on it, like Jen and I are talking about, I think the thing that still sort of saves it is that Nicholson's character is ultimately, you know, punished, spoiler alert, you know, he he's lobotomized and it's one of those where the protagonist of the the movie, he do, he doesn't succeed but he inspires someone else to succeed. So, you know, and I think Nicholson does get his comeuppance, but then, you know, the chief who's sort of the innocent one, you know, gets gets to emerge and and you know, run off into the wilderness back back to, you know, 
I guess in our current era of the Washington football team, it's sort of, you know, getting to retake his, his land back. But yeah, so I think that sort of is what saves Cuckoo's Nest for me. But it is a different watch when you look back. I don't think it's a comeuppance for him. Not to, not to go off on this for too long. But <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I think that moment is supposed to be, you know, this is how bad the system is that, okay. that, that they're doing this to this person, which is a valid point to make. I just don't very think- 1970s. Point. Yeah, which I and I, but I just don't think that Nurse Ratchet's the one to blame for for that. I mean, I think she's part of a system that is flawed. But for some reason, when we talk about that movie, we talk about her and how bad she was, and that's not really the point. Right. Well, and like you know, and one of the things about that. this time is uh, this is a good time to go back and pick up films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or the other night we watched Quiz Show as a result of. Uh, of quiz, uh, uh, the series uh, that recently came out. And I think we should mention that uh, there, you will have many opportunities to watch the two films about Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, as a result of her passing away this week. And the documentary RBG is uh, something I uh, especially remember as very strong. Mm-hmm. While the feature film on the basis of sex uh, doesn't rise to the level of the documentary, so watch the documentary. Lou, what are you, what are you watching? Last night we were watching Coastal Elites, the one you all recommended with Bette Midler and uh, Dan Levy, mm. where they're doing the monologue thing, and uh, we made it through Bette and half a Dan, and then I just turned it off. <laughs> Did we recommend that? I don't remember recommending that. I, I think it came up. It came up. It, and come up. it did come up in some conversations because I made notes from the last podcast. But we wanted to watch it, and I have to. I have to say that from a from an actor's standpoint, to be able to to recite a monologue that runs fifteen to twenty minutes nonstop. I mean, that's a real chore to me in in the world of acting. And to be able to pull something like that off. And Bet was pretty funny, but I don't know. So that's yeah. that's what I'm watching. Oh, and by the way, one more thing. We watched the Challenger series, and I couldn't agree. Oh, yeah, wasn't and, that great? And, and I couldn't agree more. That was some of the best television I've seen in, in a long time. And binge-worthy. I could not stop watching. I just went from one episode to another. So I hope they do uh, more with it. Speaking of that, uh, how about taking a break for Hound Radio, our enabler? Well, I would love to shamelessly plug Hound Radio. You know, we play the best breeds of music, and we also offer life's, <laughs> woof, woof, lifestyle features. We have, like, the world of dogs, and also one like this if you're into real estate. Our house. Ain't gonna need this house no longer. Ain't gonna need this house no more. House. Hound Radio is busy sniffing around getting you helpful residential real estate tips like this. In a normal market, there are several reasons that a listing can go under contract and then back on the market. This is never a good thing for the listing because it creates doubt for prospective buyers. In this market, though, we're seeing more homes than usual go back on the market. With so much competition out there, buyers are exhausted. They most likely place more than one offer on a house and are in a rush to make decisions and place the next offer before they lose it. Many offer much higher than asking price and an as-is inspection, which makes their bid stronger, but it also allows them to back out within the first few days. 
When the dust finally settles and the inspection report comes back, they get buyer's remorse. Overpaying for an average house, sometimes with average maintenance or some repairs needed, suddenly doesn't seem like such a good deal. Even with sellers are willing to work with them to stay the course, it doesn't always happen. So these days, a home that is back on the market is not necessarily a poorly maintained home. It could actually be an opportunity for less competition and maybe even a small negotiation. But maybe not. I'm Karen Parnes for Hound Radio. The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Cheney, and Lou Katz comes to you from the secret underground bunker studios of the Katz Podcasting System. So uh, Jason Fraley is with us, uh, coming to us live from Frederick, Maryland, where you are uh, the unofficial mayor of Frederick, I understand. <laughs> and you and your wife, Ashley, are involved in uh, bringing movies back to Frederick in this uh, pandemic time. Tell me about it. Well, I would like to just defer to her because she, man, she she might as well be the mayor of Frederick Arch. Cause she, this, is all, this is all her deal. I'm just here to help plug it. So she, uh, it, it's, she works, she's just the backstory of it is fascinating too, of sort of the ingenuity of how different companies during the pandemic are pivoting to try to, you know, stay afloat and ultimately create some cool silver linings out of this thing. So it, it was a, a company named Showtime Sound. They do the sound and lighting and the, you know, giant LED screens for, you know, Childish Gambino, Keith Urban, Kevin Hart, like actual stadium concerts. But obviously for six months, they haven't, they've had no, zero revenue because zero live shows. So they said, well, wait a minute, let's take these giant LED screens and why don't we erect a giant um, drive-in movie theater at the Frederick Fairgrounds, which the Frederick Fair is also canceled this year. So instead of those, you know, projector pop-up screens that you can't, that you have to wait for sundown to be able to see the movie, you know, screen on the green that used to be in DC, that stuff. This one, they can show matinees, evening double features uh, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday because it's a, it's a giant LED wall. So I think it's cool. They, I think they pack about like 300 cars in there and they've been selling out a lot of the mm. nights at the Frederick Fairground. It's really cool. Um, I think this this Saturday they're showing Black Panther sort of in honor of uh, Chadwick Boseman. So everyone can go check that out. Very timely mm -hmm. one. And then Sunday they're doing a really cool car theme where they're, they're showing Pixar's cars during the day. And then, you know, Tom Cruise Days of Thunder at night. But the whole point is that they're they they're inviting everyone to bring their classic cars and they get oh. special. Yeah, I think they might even give out some prizes for the coolest uh, hot rods. You'd have to ask her, <laughs> double check me on that. But yeah, it's, it's a cool thing. They had American Graffiti a couple weeks ago. They oh, had love that. They had Grease last Sunday where, you know, so I can only imagine John Travolta sings. Stranded at the drive-in. Stranded at the drive-in, at the drive-in. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's really cool. They have food trucks. Obviously it's all socially distanced, but I'm, I just want to take my cap off to her. She's been working around the clock on this thing. And it's, it's, it's one of those silver linings for the community. Who would have thought drive-ins would ever have been a thing, but they're popping up all over. So it's the Frederick Fairgrounds. And uh, what's the, uh, what's the freight? What's the cost to get in? Can uh, I stick all my friends in the trunk of my car? <laughs> 
Um, I'm pretty sure it cost, I'm trying to find the cost. It's somewhere around 25 or 30 bucks. That's 25 fun. to 35. Yes. Yeah, or a car load. Yeah. It's, it's per car. Oh. So, um, yeah, it's actually, it's pretty comparable to the other, uh, you'll, you'll find other drive-ins that are, you know, maybe seem to be a bit cheaper, but when you look into their stuff, they charge per person or one of know. my fondest memories is going to the drive-in with, uh, seven friends in a rambler where the seats dropped all the way down <laughs> turning the car into a giant bed and you know nothing untoward happened but uh, we were in this rambler and all the seats were down and we were uh, <laughs> watching goldfinger <laughs> the drive-in in a rambler now that's entertainment <laughs> <laughs> So, Jason, when you come on, I love for you to uh, to do what's your favorite genre. So pick a genre and uh, and let's see what we come up with. How about what's your favorite Western? Rolling, 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 rolling. We let Jen go first because... No, I, I, it's not one of my favorite genres, so I'm going to have to think about it for a minute. What if I open the bidding with Blazing Saddles? <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> We had that on my, I had that on my comedy list, but I mean, it could count. It could count technically. Okay, I'll go with True Grit, both uh, versions, but actually with a little more weight to the second version, the newer version, True Grit. Rooster Cogburn. Rooster Cogburn, yeah. Yeah, I'll go with True Grit. I'll go with The Long Riders. I remember really liking Stagecoach. <laughs> I, that's I don't, a good one. I don't remember much about it. I just remember that I really enjoyed it. That oh, was Stage John Wayne's debut. Yeah, as the Ringo kid, and they're all going across country on the stagecoach. And a lot, a lot of people sort of say that that invented the feature, what John Ford invented mm -hmm. the feature Western with that, as opposed to, you know, before it was a lot of like the, you know, the, the serials with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. And the stagecoach really sort of put it on the map. Yeah. Ooh, you got a Western? Uh, I, you know, when I think of the genre, I think of like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Paul that's Newman true. and Robert Redford. Oh, yeah, of course. I, I, th I think that's sort of a, a classic. That and the good and the bad and the ugly, but I, I don't so much m remember the movie as I do the music from the soundtrack, so. <laughs> right. Just being a music right. guy, right? I give us your list, Jason. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you mine. Give, give us five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sure. I had Unforgiven at number six, knocking on the door, Shane, Liberty Valance. They almost made the top five, but my top, my number five, I had High Noon. I just think it, it's, you know, with Gary Cooper, is the lone man in town, sort of a McCarthyism allegory standing up against the blacklist. But also, even if you strip all that away, you got that Tex Ritter theme, do not forsake me, oh my darling. Um, John Ritter's dad actually sings. I just thought it, I think it's really cool how Fred Zinnemann times it with the clock and it, the whole thing sort of unfolds in real time. Uh, number four, I had Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. I think that was just, talk about, you know, during a Vietnam era where, you know, uh, of mass violence, it really was like a bloody ballet, how he cut that thing together. And you had William Holden and Ernest Borgnine and it, the, the cast was just awesome on that. Number three, I'm with, I agree with Lou. I had Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid by George Roy Hill. It was, um, you may, remember Roy Hill reunited with Redford and Newman in The Sting and they won Best Picture a few years later, but it was Butch yeah. and Sundance that uh, really was all their first pairing. And it was just a fun, I think it's like the greatest buddy comedy <laughs> Western ever. You know, what did they say? Um, the I can't swim, but the fall will kill you. 
<laughs> and um, it, it's just, I, I smile every time I watch the uh, whole thing. And it's, and uh, I, I just think that it's, it's one of those great ones that, that, you know, we wouldn't have the name of the Sundance Film Festival without that, you know, Redford named it after Sundance Kid. Number two, I'm also with, with Lou. I had, um, I had the good, the bad and the ugly. If you want to count, or, or if you really want to say the whole man with no name trilogy by Sergio Leone, the spaghetti Westerns that Ennio Morricone, we just lost him recently, but man, those, those, the, the music was great. And everyone remembers the, you know, the main theme, the wow, wow. But I also <laughs> want to point out his theme at the very end when they're in the cemetery, I believe it's titled the ecstasy of gold is you'll still hear that all the time, you know, on commercials and stuff these days. Oh. So I, and what's just, number one? Yeah, Clint Eastwood's great. Number one, I have John Ford's The Searchers. Um, right. Yeah. I think, uh, I know it's sort of the, the classic. I know it's sort of the default answer with a lot of these because <laughs> it's got the the opening and closing bookends of him in the doorway there. But I actually, I think that it, you know, I, I think I think it's the right answer just in terms of there's, you know, you watch the way Ford directs that. There's a whole symbolic thing going on with with John Wayne and his his brother-in-law's, you know, family there in the beginning. Just it's not really even in the script, but if you just look at the way he groups together the people in the shots, there's like a whole subtext of what's going on and what's driving well, the search. We also, just got time. We just have time for Jen to throw her flashback and favorite question at us as we wrap this thing up. So Jim, I'm gonna throw it over to you. Yeah, so this week, uh, Rolling Stone redid its 500 greatest albums of all time list. Like they, oh, they revised it a yeah. little bit to modernize it a little bit. And so that, that kind of inspired my question, which is what was your first album that you ever bought? And I'm not even sure I know the answer for myself. <laughs> I have an odd answer for okay. you, but it was uh, Van Cliburn's uh, recording of Tchaikovsky's uh, Piano Concerto Number no. One uh, in Moscow, which okay. won the um, the Russian competition. <laughs> right. I don't mean to be a snob about it, but uh, that's what it was. Okay, Jason, um, the first cassette I ever owned was Queen's Greatest Hits, believe it or not. Freddie Mercury <laughs> had just died and someone got that for us. But, I, you know, I, I had no idea what any of the significance. I just, you know, liked We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions, you know, because I was a kid playing sports. But then I, I look back and I think that's pretty cool. But actually the first one that I bought well, my first one that I specifically owned, my twin brother and I, we bought the Puff Daddy and Notorious B.I.G. album, No Way Out. Remember uh, all about the Benjamins? It was, it was on that one. And we bought it coming out of watching the Truman Show. I don't know why I have huh. that memory at the mall of all places. So Lou, you, you were a disc jockey. This <laughs> ought to be rich. Did you ever buy any album? Yes, I did, Archie. When I was a kid, I think it was 1969, I bought my first album. It was a Blood, Sweat and Tears album. And it had ah. the hit song, You Make Me uh, So Very Happy. And the album was uh, Ch uh, Child is a, a Father to the Man. And I do remember that very, very clearly. I want to throw in the uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young uh, Teach Your Children album, which meant a lot to me. But it was Van Cliburn. And come on, Jen, <laughs> wrap this up for us. Well, my memory is that I got, I feel like I got more than one album at Christmas. And so there wasn't like one first one. Uh -huh. But I feel like a couple of them were the Grease soundtrack. 
and oh. Crimes of Passion by Pep Benatar. That's that's what I remember. Oh, wow. Is she in well, the Hall of Fame yet? No. Like she isn't, and it's a sin. It's, it is. It's ridiculous. Well, speaking of a sin, we're running low on time, <laughs> but uh, Jason, thank you so much for being here and reminding us of the uh, drive-in. And Jim, it's always such a pleasure to, to hear what you're uh, thinking about and watching these days. And Louie, will you wrap this up for us? I have a very appropriate song to wrap up the podcast. It's from a, a, an artist named Ray Lamontagne. And he has a song called Drive-In Movies. <laughs> <laughs> so aim your steering wheel this way and catch us for our next podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Spent all the childhood years Wishing that I looked like a movie star Sailing around behind my head Leaning up against a muscle car Wanna know the things that I should not know Got smokes that I stole from a seven hour Everybody's at the drive and I wanna go Wanna be the guy who doesn't like to fight Who can kick your ass if you touch his girl Wanna be the guy who breaks all the rules But the cops let him off cause they think he's cool Wanna know the things that I shouldn't know Got smokes that I stole from a seven hour Everybody's at the drive and I wanna go
that smokes But by now I guess I'm old Driving's just an empty lot No one moans I miss those drums This is the CATS Podcasting System.